Hi, everyone, wherever you are. I'm joined today on Tennis with an Accent by Mark Petschy, who will be very familiar to you as a previous guest on the podcast, but also one of the top international commentators, former player, former coach, uh, I think in England now. Uh, welcome, Mark. Hi, well, thanks for having me back on the show. And you are in England, whereabouts? Um, I'm a kind of lob away from the All England Club, actually. So uh, that's where our apartment here is in the UK. So we um, we get our one piece of exercise a day, which takes us kind of past the deserted courts there, which is always a stark reminder of where we're at at the moment. Yeah, I was going to start off just by asking how you and your family were doing and uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about what it's like uh, living in Britain at the moment, this is going to be an international audience. So a lot of people aren't really familiar with how things are in the UK at the moment. Yeah, well, I think, to be honest, obviously, like, <coughs> sorry, like everywhere, you know, tough times, no question about it. We probably, in some respects, in terms of our lockdown, have got it um, not too bad. Obviously, places like South Africa, which have got a full lockdown, no exercise outside, um, and, and obviously places like France where you have to go online and Greece and you can actually get a permit to go down to the grocery store, um, et cetera, um, is obviously tougher than we're having it here. But we have basically the opportunity to go out once a day for some exercise uh, and once a day to go to the grocery store, any essential kind of needs that you have. So from that point of view, it's obviously not been too bad. We've got another three weeks that's just been extended for the lockdown here in the UK uh, before they obviously start deciding whether they flatten the curve enough and feel as though that there can be some ease on restrictions. So we've had a bit of construction still going on here in the UK. Obviously, the government have deemed certain things to be still viable and perhaps necessary in terms of at least keeping the economy ticking over at a very low level uh, before Hopefully, obviously, we slowly um, and carefully come out of this towards some sort of normalcy, which will probably look a little bit different to what we were used to. Yes, and and I I, I think you've covered a lot of ground there. We, we've got a lot, a lot of ground to cover. I think topic A, as everyone would expect, is going to be the impact of the pandemic on the sport that, that we all love and on the, the, the people associated with it. There's short-term, medium-term, and and long-term impacts. I'd kind of like to take you back to the past, just for a, for a second or so, because um, I had the pleasure of listening to you commentate on the the Federer Melbourne match uh, back, which seems an age ago, at the Australian Open, and that was late January when the the first news started to come out internationally about a potential new virus in China. And over time, we learn more about it. I, I'm interested in hearing your perspective, the the comments you heard from tennis players and coaches, perhaps leading up to Indian Wells being cancelled and uh, and then beyond that. What was what was your experience of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I remember that match very well. In fact, the uh, the lady who looks after a lot of us very uh, well on the, the world feed down in Australia actually just sent me a message yesterday. She said she's missing tennis so much that she was re-watching that specific match that you just talked mm -hmm. 
it, it was epic. I'm sure John Millman can kind of remind, remind himself a little more fondly than he probably did for 48 hours after that. Just what a terrific effort that was. And as you say, you know, we were kind of starting the year in dramatic fashion and another major. Everyone felt, you know, unbelievably positive about what was happening. And as you say, that was the first instances really of the coronavirus. And in fact, kind of bizarrely, um, I was staying out in the Docklands and taking the tram in every day. And I, on the last four or five days of the Australian Open um, at Melbourne, got very sick. And mm. I honestly thought it was just um, just normal, normal sort of, well, I thought it was a normal flu to start with. And then it was like terrible fevers and everything else. And obviously, you know, when you're working, um, it was one match a day and I was kind of able to drag myself in and, and work. But I was staying with my wife and we were kind of saying, well, we hope it's not the coronavirus. But, you know, at that stage, there was so much, there was so limited the kind of knowledge about it, what the symptoms were, how serious it was. Um, and, you know, I kind of came out of the Australian, um, got home and, and wasn't, you know, we didn't feel great for a while after that as well. And I suppose that was the time when you started thinking like, well, what, what will happen if, if, if this does start obviously expanding into other countries, did it get to Australia at that stage? I think there were like two cases by the time the Australian open finished in the state of Victoria. Um, and, and it didn't feel like it was going to derail the season or society at that stage in the way that obviously it has. Yes. And I think for many people, the if you were watching in the United States, uh, the, the main focus of attention sporting wise is on the college basketball at that time. And everyone gears up for the thing called March Madness. And then we started to hear about people talking about potentially playing that tournament in front of uh, empty stadiums. Then in early March, they announced that uh, that wasn't going to happen. They were going to cancel the, the rest of the NBA season and um, they were going to cancel the, the college basketball tournament. And then on the Sunday before Indian Wells was due to start, the tournament came out with an announcement and said, we're not going ahead now. Presumably, um, I'm assuming you, you had plans to travel and commentate on that tournament. And I was actually there. I was in Indian Wells. I'd actually okay. early to see my daughters in college for a week in uh, Dallas and in Oregon. And then we had gone to, my wife and I had gone to Indian Wells to actually, for me to go and watch a bit of the Challenger there, because obviously there were, obviously it was a hugely strong Challenger. I hadn't mm -hmm. seen some of those players play for a long time. So I wanted to go and do a little bit of research and scouting. Um, and so I was actually there watching the Challenger and it was kind of a, like a sort of a little bit of a surreal feel because, um, you know, you kind of got the sense that there was something significant changing in the air, but it wasn't kind of in Indian Wells at that stage because you're watching tennis and you're watching Jack Sock play, but you're thinking like, how long is, how long are we going to be actually able to compete with everything that we're hearing? And, um, you know, so that tournament obviously happened, but I was told like a couple of days before the final of the challenger that if they got one corona uh virus out you know infected person in 
the valley, they were going to pull the tournament. And obviously, you know, that happened on the Sunday. Uh, Tiebreak 10s, which I was due to commentate on, was obviously due on the Tuesday night. So uh, that ended up obviously being cancelled as well. Um, and so, and at that stage, I still think there were a number of kind of people, players that were feeling as though it was a bit of an overreaction to, you know, obviously the downside from the hit for the players, the tennis economy ecosystem to, uh, you know, to pull a tournament with one case. But, you know, there was, there was obviously when you look at the high risk areas and the age groups that this virus is obviously sadly targeting, obviously, in, especially in Indian Wells, you know, that unfortunately was very much the sort of, you know, the predominant age range there. So it was obviously the correct decision at that stage, but then Miami was staying on the, the on, so we hung around for a while until obviously the um, government there, the state government there, pulled that particular tournament. So at that stage, you kind of thought this is probably going to be the season done, and that was obviously something that none of us had kind of expected two weeks before. Right, and. After Miami, there was a set of rolling cancellations. Um, Roland Garros came out with an announcement that it was shifting to uh, September, which I think caused some controversy. And we can talk a little bit about the way that the, the national organizations and the, the majors have responded. But we've lost the grass court season as well. Wimbledon... Um, came out with an announcement uh i think about a month ago that it that it that it was cancelling so perhaps we, we we can think a little bit about what you mentioned which is the tennis ecosystem and 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 start with players are, are you in touch with some of the the players perhaps some of the english players or perhaps some of the the international players to to hear from them about how they're coping with the uncertainty, but also lockdowns? I think, to be fair, I haven't spoken to that many, um, but the reality is is that, you know, depending on where you are in the world right now, obviously for Florida, and my daughter spent most of spring break in Florida, a friend's house, you know, the lockdown there was not as significant as it has been in other places. So if you've been there, you've still been able to sort of, at times, you know, been able to get on a tennis court. Um, but obviously for lots of players, you know, this lockdown is as serious as it is for everybody else. So it's a question of, you know, trying to stay physically fit as you can without hitting tennis balls. And obviously just kind of thinking about when and if the season is going to restart. But I think the reality is, is nobody, nobody was prepared for this. I mean, you know, that's, that's. Mm. That's the truth. You know, why would we be prepared for something that has never happened, um, that has been as significant? All the things that we've kind of had in the past, like SARS and MERS, have, have, and Ebola, have, or Zika, have been significant, um, and they have potentially been very sort of dangerous, but they haven't got the stage that this did. And I think that everybody kind of felt that that was going to be the case with this particular situation as well, that it wasn't going to crater, um, you know, society, the economies of so many nations um, in the way that it has. And I think that, you know, there is, there is no plan at the moment for everybody. Everybody is just hoping that, you know, 
whether the vaccine or you know you get creative but obviously from a from a large point of view tennis is going to struggle a little bit because of international travel um and although from a social distancing point of view you can play tennis in singles um it's going to be very difficult to give all players a fair crack at being able to potentially get to these tournaments and that's where i'm sure the atp wta and others are kind of having to make some plans about what can we do to try and get any of the events played this year to try and generate some in some revenue for the players um, and obviously themselves before we sort of try and look towards the future, which is about survival. Let's be honest, for a lot of people right now, not just in tennis, but for a lot of people, this is going to be two or three years of trying to look at each other and try and help everybody out. Yes, I think that you're, you're absolutely right there. Um, my daughter is in Newcastle in England, so she's going through some of the same restrictions that you are. I'm based in Houston, the United States, so things are, are, are a bit looser over here. But I'm telling her that, you know, this is sort of like a combination of the Great Depression and World War II in the sense of really significant societal changes likely to flow from this. And, um, you know, to use a World War II analogy just for a second, we're in October 1939 of this, that you don't know when it's going to end and you, you, you don't really know the, the, the shape of the world that's, that's going to come afterwards. No, I don't. And I think that, you know, you know this is a defining moment for the world. Um, it is a defining moment, obviously, for tennis as well. But, you know, I think that when you look at history and you look at the Great Depression, you look at recessions, you know, the wealthy countries are going to be able to account them their way out of it you know they are going to be able to print money they are going to be able to uh you know do do the accounts in the way that they have to with just numbers and digitize things and and they will be okay in time you know whether that's two or three years or whether that's five years they will work and that money will work through the system because that is the way that it's worked pretty much for eternity um in our civilization where you have to worry is obviously what is going to happen with the, the less wealthy nations um, and how are they going to be able to emerge from this pandemic um, with societies that were potentially already under a huge amount of pressure when they don't have the financial muscle to be able to, to help themselves to get out of it. And then when you leave a vacuum like that, um, you have obviously the potential for great conflict um, and you obviously, from a tennis perspective, one thing that we celebrate is the global kind of appeal of our sport. We're potentially going to have some fairly desolate spots on the on the globe where tennis just simply is going to disappear because governments are not going to be able to to fund in the same way that they used to be able to help out. So there is going to be a lot of, you would feel, in tennis I'm talking about, and maybe that's just a micro sort of... Um, view of the of the macro one in terms of what we're going to face as a world in terms of the IOUs that these nations are going to need from us is how do we support the tennis ecosystem in those places going forward because obviously and as we've already seen on the macro scale 
Um, and we've already been sadly going through it with Brexit and a lot of nationalism creeping into our politics. We've already seen it in tennis that the majors who have the good fortune of being obviously from a historical point of view and from a locational point of view, able to generate a huge amount of wealth that they have plugged into vast majority of it into their own countries. I think they're at a very defining point in terms of do they change that model to some degree for the next two or three years to try and look at the tennis ecosystem where you have people like Canada saying this is going to crush us for three years because we get most of our revenue from the Rogers Cup. You look at places like Italy where so much of the money comes um, from their tournaments. How do the, if you want to liken it to the central banks, the majors, help these countries and others in even less fortunate positions like Canada and Italy to be able to emerge from this with a viable program and tournaments and players for tennis? Well, there's a lot in that. And you've you've teed up a question that, that I had, which is we can think about summarizing some of what you said in terms of the haves and have nots. Mm-hmm. And I think that a major question for tennis moving into the 2020s was that a very small number of players got very wealthy from playing the sport. Uh, a number of, 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 if you, if you like mid tier players um, got by and then a lot of players were were scrambling and living right on the edge with 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 very little resource uh, to fall back on. And the the pandemic, the response to the pandemic, potentially pushes them over the edge. Yeah. Similarly, I don't know if you saw the uh, the piece in the New York Times that Chris Clary wrote at the end of March, where he went into tournament economics. Yes, and said that the the ATP 250s made an average profit of about one hundred twenty five thousand dollars on a budget of four million dollars. Yeah, the five hundreds and the thousands did better, and obviously the majors did did better still. But you had a very strong faction, particularly within the ATP, which tends to be louder on this subject, I think, than the WTA does where Vasek Postasil, Novak Djokovic, and a number of other players were saying, this can't continue, we need to do something about this. And, and, and I wonder if this current crisis, potentially on the tournament front and, and on the player front, protect, potentially acts as a catalyst for really significant change. That's a big question, and, and it's a great question, Andrew. Listen... From my perspective, um, this is not a new issue. Uh, players falling off the cliff at too low a number on the rankings. You know, this has been around for for a long, long time. You know, we've talked, and you know, there's been virtually no price money increase in the futures levels. You know, since the 1990s. Now, you know, if you just take, for a conservative point of view, two percent depreciation in cash every year. You only need to know that in 20 years, 25 years, what that buying power of that money is now for these players playing in futures. It's it's negligible. And it has been, you know, 
the bottom line is it's been blindingly obvious for a long time that we needed to sort it out. And to be brutally honest, and this isn't the time to start pointing fingers and to coin a phrase from Bill Gates, there are not too many people in tennis that are going to get a grade A for what they have done at the lower rung of tennis. They have really turned a blind eye to the economics of it and how much players have suffered. I wrote an email back in 2015 to both the ATP and the ITF on this particular subject, and it was actually encompassing juniors because both my girls played ITF juniors, and it was titled The Struggle. And it just had a few simple things in, but the in essence was this, this is just impossible, even for somebody that's been in the sport who has a little bit of money to kind of do it, um, and I was paying it all myself, but it is a huge undertaking. And the tennis ecosystem would flourish far better um, if there was more money at the bottom end um, so that people are chasing a dream, not an illusion. And somehow we need to figure out a way of redistributing this wealth um, in a far more effective way than we currently are. This doubling like we have at the Australian this year, and it's not a criticism of the Australian, we're all, they're, they're all guilty of it from the quarters on, is just not, it's just, it can't work in terms of the increases, percentage of increases um, at the majors. They've been amazing. Okay, the player revenue has stayed the same. And I understand every argument in this. The player revenue stayed the same. The growth exponentially in the money that the majors have been making has been so vast that the money that the players are making has gone up substantially, but the revenue share has stayed the same, which is kind of the argument that Vasek is making. Mm -hmm. It's a tough argument make when you're, you're making $50,000 for losing in the first round to most normal people. But that is a genuine um, point of view. But the fact of the matter is, is there has been a lot of chat about how we need to get more money from the majors. But the reality is, and it is a stark reality, is that they have not ever, to my knowledge, said, we want this money because we want to feed it right down the system to the futures. It's been about these players coming in wanting to feel as though they want to make more money um, and it hasn't had a collective unified cohesive approach to how we're going to allow what is this number Andrew 500 players who not maybe make money but don't have you know but possibly break even at 500 is it 750 I'm not sure what that number what our wealth distribution can cope with but I kind of feel it needs to be in that area where maybe they're not filing a tax return at 500 in the world but they're at least breaking even. And if you start at that point and you start at whatever the, the winner's check needs to be at the majors, is it two million? And this isn't a criticism of the majors because they've come to the party, but they do have an extraordinary amount of wealth that comes into tennis and somehow together with the ATP, WTA and ITF, away what their stop point is on a winner's check and where we want to break even for a tennis player and then we need to figure out a way to distribute the wealth in a far better way. This doubling, which doesn't happen in golf, is just putting, as you say, too much money into those people's you know, pockets at the back end of slams. And it's very tough for them to vote for a pay cut when they're getting given that. You know, So I do think that this crisis is going to bring that very much into focus. I do know that the tours did have and do have a five-year program to try and shift a lot of the money from the right side of the draw to the left. But to be honest, 
it needs to go way down the ladder because, as I say, the tennis ecosystem is fragile. People like Patrick Moritoglu coming out saying that the players need... Well, with all due respect, again, to Patrick, you've been in this game for a long time. And one of the things that I'm sure he felt when they were going to change the ranking systems for the ITF juniors and a lot of the academies around the world suddenly came out and suddenly realized what was going to happen when the ITF started to do that was players weren't going to be able to play. They were going to restrict the number of professional tennis players um, and therefore the academy's model, which, let's be honest, works on about a 1% success rate of people actually making it into the pros, was going to fail because there weren't going to be enough players attempting to chase this illusion. And so, again, in this situation with this crisis, what's being brought into fact is that there is no backup cash in these players that are aspiring to be professional tennis players. So the academy model is going to also fall away. And my big thing in tennis is we talk a lot about elite performance. We talk a lot about participation. They are not mutually exclusive. They are together. They have to be joined together. The LTA have been guilty of this over here in the UK. What we want is players that are playing. They're the ones at the bottom end that are actually putting money into tennis, not taking money out. But more importantly, we have a situation where we all know that the demographic of TV viewers is basically staying the same. It's the same people watching every decade. It just gets 10 years older. It's the same people. We need to generate more eyeballs on the sport. We have four massive rock stars in tennis right now. Novak, Rafa um, and Roger. And they have about 25 million eyeballs on them through, if you look at their Instagram. Serena's is 12 million, better than all of those three men's individually. Um, you know, Venus only has 1.2. If you look at golf with Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth, they have about a million people. Zverev has about just over a million. Vavrinka, Tsitsipas is under a million. We're going to lose, potentially, in the next two or three years, you know, 30 million eyeballs from the sport. And, and that is going to be a big hit commercially. And therefore, this crisis in some ways and paradox, because on one hand, you can be ultra pessimistic, but I'm actually optimistic because I think that people are going to suddenly realize that we actually together have to, you know, put in a plan that is actually going to create a future for tennis that is sustainable for a lot more people than it currently is. Yes. And uh I think that we've in in the last few minutes, you know, gone over some of the, the, the real fundamental tensions in the sport in terms of how much is it focused on the few at the top and how much of it is focused on the many that, that you, you, you have to have in the sport to keep the sport healthy and alive. The, the, the sport depends on, on, a, on a degree of renewal in terms of having new stars come along. And I've spent some time looking at how few have come along in the last few years or so, but you, you, you need to have that happen. But you can't do without, you know, let's say 500 uh, male strong players, 500, female strong players to uh, you know who who are competing at all levels not just in the last two days of a grand slam tournament and making that 
make, making the system work for all versus making the system work for a few, I think that the, that's not going to be just the question of tennis. Um, when you talk about the way that, that countries are acting, the governments are having to, to put support into um, keeping people afloat at the moment because we can't allow people to go out to work. And are we going to go back to a system where the, the money flows up to the top and doesn't flow down to the bottom? So this comes across as being very much a societal question as well as being a tennis or a sports question. A hundred percent. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, there is no there is no system that isn't ultimately flawed to some degree, whether it's democracy, socialism, communism, dictatorship. It's it's flawed to some degree. You know, capitalism is flawed. You know, I am a capitalist, but I do believe that you have to have a, a fairly large side portion of socialism if we are to get on in this world and if we are to to be able to generate a society that we're proud of and that is actually far fairer to to a lot of people out there who are genuinely struggling on a day-to-day basis before this even crisis happened but you know the point is is that we were aware of this in written about for decades about how the drop-off in tennis is just so severe you know and the way that the obviously the itf kind of wanted to try and solve it to some degree with the ranking points which also had a slight side element of trying to potentially come in for the slams to take away some of the ATP WTA power through the points was to restrict the sport and only have about 750 players. For my mind, that's completely against the spirit of what the ITF should be. They should be growing the game rather than constricting it to solve their problem. You have the betting issue, which obviously they suddenly got into a PR mess about the betting coming. Well, the reality of that, Andrew, was the fact was that no one was getting paid well enough at the bottom end. That's what ended up causing the problems with match fixing Mm -hmm. down there was because players were desperate. They had no, you know, so it was easier to ban the data and and the betting companies away from the futures than it was to actually get everybody around a, a table and redistribute the wealth um, in a in a more uh, efficient manner, you know that's the whole eighty twenty rule of life. You know everyone wants to just you know take the easy route, and the easiest route was to to to, to ban the betting companies rather than and the data rather than to actually say you know what these players are getting severely underpaid back here, and there's way too much wealth on the right. But actually, that's a PR tool to some degree because if the top players are saying we're doing great, then obviously you know nobody really cares you know, about the guy 400. Nobody cares about my view either because I went in 2015 to try and have these conversations and obviously nothing ended up happening. You know, the top players are also, let's not forget, tennis players are incredibly tax efficient at that level as well as athletes. They're not stuck in one place. They can base themselves out of very tax efficient bases as well. So they're also doing very well out of that side of things. So, you know, it's it is a society issue. It is very much a, um, a tennis issue where it hasn't. And I understand that to some degree because we have had a lot of, I think, individuals in the sport at the top ends who haven't really seen eye to eye with other entities. And therefore, that's caused a lot of friction um, that hasn't been able to look at this objectively and being able to come to some kind of solution that works for everybody, which is why we're now seeing Novak and he should be applauded and, and appreciated for what he's tried to do here. But it is a snap back of the napkin calculations trying to help 
these players out. It should not be done in that manner. It should not be down to him to have to step up and put his hand up and his hand in his pocket because he doesn't need to, as the, the other players, to try and solve it. This should have been done way before that in a far more well-constructed way that we wouldn't be in this situation where you know everybody is dying of suffering. We are independent. My economy is created. I'm earning nothing. You know, you take that risk to some degree when you are a tennis player and you're a freelancer and you're self-employed. That when something as big as this and the magnitude of this comes along, you are taking a massive hit and you've got to figure out a way to come through it. And the fact that the tennis players are stepping up to potentially do something and the majors coming in is a good thing. But it's rushed. It's chaotic. It's got flaws in it. Um, and and we kind of need to take a deep breath, I think, and say, well, hang on a minute. Is it better to drop 10 grand on a player's map? Guy that was 700 last year would have made $9,000. That's before tax and everything else. He's just got, a, by the way, he's just got a pay increase um, if they went down that route. Um, and actually take a breath and say, actually, why don't we look at this holistically? Why don't we look at this from top to bottom? And we do everything that we can to actually solve this while we've got time on our side where there's actually no tennis being played. So we can put in a plan that the ring of support that certain nations are in and federations and players have, and those that are out of it can be pulled a little bit more into it in a far more constructive way. Yeah. What you're referring to is the, uh, the plan that, that Novak talked about um, in terms of, uh, the the top five ATP players yeah. um, putting a, a large sum in, five to ten. Uh, I think somebody noticed that Medvedev was going to have to contribute twice yeah. if it was one yeah, to five and five and to ten. criticism to anybody here, Andrew. No criticism. If you're going to take, a, you know, they don't need to do anything, but if you are going to suddenly be kind of, you know, behind the eight ball and rush out something that is going to potentially be four four and a half million dollars you know but you're doing it under pressure when it's as super complicated as you've got Hyun Chung and Jack Sock in that particular bracket where they could get dropped 10 grand do they need 10 grand I don't think so you know there's a lot of tennis players in there that are also getting help from federations that don't need 10 grand when other people do need 10 grand but if you're doing it on the back of a napkin you know you're going to put out something like that that as you said one to five five to ten but when you look at it you're already, and you don't need to be, you know, the, you know, the Fed chairman to go. Well, if the top one to five are putting in thirty grand, which is a substantial amount of money, and well played to them, by the way. But the guys down at fifty to one hundred are putting in five grand. But Lloyd Harris, by the way, is made under a million dollars. But the big three have all individually made over one hundred and twenty million dollars. So he's got to put in five. You're putting in thirty. You know, you can already see the disparity mm-hmm. in the. You know, so but this is not a criticism. It's one, you know, it's amazing that they're willing to do this and the slams may be coming in. But this needs to be thought through. This can't be done in the manner that it's doing because, yes, it will help to some degree, but it's not going to actually fix the fundamental problem, which is we need to have a structure in tennis where the slams feel that their voice is heard, the ATP, WTA feel their voice is heard in terms of the lower levels. Now, I don't know what that looks like. My my gut feeling is we should do regional tours where Tennis Australia can take Asia, maybe the Middle East, and actually have a real direct say in what goes on at that level so they feel as though their money is getting spent well. 
do Wimbledon and the French kind of collate together to do Europe? Uh, and does America, USTA, look after North America and South America? And therefore, they feel that they are in control of where their dollars are going. To me, the ITF has become a bit obsolete. Um, it may, I feel as though the Davis Cup should become under a bigger umbrella. Um, and I feel as though that is a way forward that the majors can help even more than they already are in terms of getting a structure where the players can play in a region where they're not forced to travel globally. You sign up for the USDA tour, the European tour or the Middle Eastern tour. You spend a year on that to get your card, like a bit like golf, where you can then jump onto the ATP tour, which also has its redistribution problems of prize money in at challengers. You look at a guy that's you're making a semi of a challenger and he's picking up two and a half thousand dollars and the guy that's winning it is making over seven thousand. It's too big a jump. Okay. So in, in in the time that we've got left, let's 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 try and think a little bit long term, which you've already talked about and start do you see the two tours consolidating? We've had separate governance, the ATP uh, and the WTA. The, the ITF is a slightly different thing. Yeah. But, but can the, the, there's been discussion about the, the differences between the way that players at the 100 level in the WTA and the 100 level in the ATP uh, experience the, the tour. Do, do you think that there's a chance that, that we might see... Uh, an, an, an attempt to combine the two tours? You know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting question. And to be honest, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be down to a couple of things, economics, and it's also going to be down to kind of like attitudes. Um, you know, not all mer mergers work, do they? I mean, AOL time, mm. the biggest merger in the world, you know, it fell flat on its face, you know, um, you look at Sprint, Nexus, another billion, multi-billion dollar thing. Nexus, workplace, work ethic, more innovative. Sprint very much kind of, you know, fell apart. You know, does the WTA and the ATP visions mirror each other? Not all mergers are equal, you know. So I, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of noise from the WTA about wanting to merge with the ATP. I haven't heard so much noise from the ATP saying that they want to merge with the WTA. Are they stronger together? Potentially, but I also feel that the WTA need to be careful that their voice doesn't get more muted potentially in a merger um, than than possibly right now, where they have a fantastic product with so many great stories, so many great stars. Um, that when we come out of this crisis, which hopefully we do in the not too distant future, that actually their side of the merger could end up being stronger than the men's, as I already highlighted. You know, Serena with 12 million on Instagram, you've got three rock stars on the men's side that aren't even in her category, but they're going to potentially, what, two, three years go. You know, how do you then juggle the, the differential in that merger in terms of who brings in what TV dollars and everything else? It's a very complicated mosaic and, and one that I think needs to be very carefully thought about from, from everyone in terms of the upside, because the worst thing that tennis can have is a merger of those two and then a then a very public breakup where some one of the two sides doesn't feel as though their voice is getting heard in the way that it should. That would be a bad look. Right. And and I I I think that you and I are more or less in the same place in terms of, you know, this is not a three-month hiccup and then things resume uh 
more or less as they were. The the US Open goes ahead as scheduled, perhaps with a seat in between spectators to maintain social distancing. Um, I think that we see this as, you know, a multi-year question. And as you said, the the richer countries, because of the way the world works, are likely to come out earlier. Um, but it does seem as though this gives tennis a chance to hit the reset button and go through a period of disruption. And the period of disruption may mean that some of the players that that we got used to seeing don't come back and, and some players find that they aren't able to come back. But there there is a chance for the inequities of the tour and the, the inequities of the calendar, which we haven't brought up, the, uh, the way that it seemed like it was an 11-month calendar and a quick break for Christmas and then a reset again. The, there's, there's a chance to look at the calendar, but there's potentially a chance to, to reset the sport, um, which won't happen uh, in a month or two, but potentially you give people enough time to get together and say, how does the how do we make this stronger by constructing something that is going to work for everyone rather than everyone as soon as the restrictions are lifted runs off and does their own thing the way they did in the past? And I think that's the danger of almost the player relief fund dropping 10 grand on somebody's map, because if we're back up and running in tennis, then the noises and the narrative is all going to just resume. And we'll end up saying, well, that was then and this is now and we help them and we're back on track and let's go. So I agree with you. I think this is a great opportunity to have discussions about how the tennis moves forward, what is good for the sport, you know, team team competitions. Where do we go? As you say, with the calendar, we have to remember from the majors point of view, they've got long term infrastructure programs in place. You look at the French Federation that have borrowed 260 million to pay for the upgrades for the fans, for the players, for the roofs to keep the show going. You know, they've got huge financial bills to come in. Wimbledon have got massive kind of infrastructure plans with the golf course and, and all the bills that they have to pay off for, you know, the number one core and, and all of those things. You can't suddenly say, you know, we can't suddenly go to them and say, well, you know, oh, you need this, you need this. You know, they need to be built into long term, you know, business plans. You know, you can't suddenly just start extracting money that isn't there because they planned on a certain model. This is obviously changing things and bringing things into to closer scrutiny. And I'm sure they will help out where they can. But they're also, you know, have, have, have budgeted for things in their future that suddenly, you know, we were going to have to, you know, they're going to have to look at and think, is it entirely necessary or should we put more money into the tennis ecosystem now? Let's get that healthy again before we start building. And then the players are going to have to understand that that's also the reality as well. And they're going to have to potentially take a pay cut like many people are around the world and a pay freeze. This is not a time for profits. This is a time for survival. And, you know, if you take it even further, I do think that tennis, you know, has got, I love the tradition about it, but it's also, you know, you know, conversations that I've had since 2005 in terms of television you know, you go to a event as a television company, you pay X amount for the rights and then you go for your media day and you're stuck behind written media, which have to coexist and should. And they, everybody does a fantastic job in that in that regard. But you have 
one side of it where you have the television dollars piling in and yet you sit there, which I've done over a hundred times and listen to a 15, 20 minute sort of press conference with unlimited questions about stuff that's not even that relative to what's going on. And the television company that's trying to build a lovely package and montage of certain players um, has one question because, sorry, the time's gone. And when you go and speak to people in the sport, they go, yeah, you've got a valid point there. But as the USTA said to me in 2005, but this is kind of how we do it. And it's like, well, it's not about them not having enough time. It's about us in the tennis industry and in the broadcasting industry and the media industry that all have very important roles to play that we coexist happily together and everybody feels as though they're getting enough and in this age of content and visual content being driven and all of these things we need to figure out a way to come to kind of some happy medium where you feel as though if you fly into cincinnati you know and it costing your company ten thousand plus dollars just to go a couple of days earlier and probably a lot more in some cases and you get one question with a player that you're building this fantastic you're like well is tennis getting stuck in the dark ages in terms of that so i do think what you're saying here is there is a myriad of possibilities and questions um and and that we can digest and discuss that we could come out of this in a far better place going forward for the sport but it is going to take a real sense of cooperation from a lot of bodies that perhaps in the past haven't quite seen things as equal. Um, but I do feel as though that actually the will will be there. When I look at the current crop of people that are, are leading in general, I will have to say that maybe on the ITF side, I wouldn't say this, but I do think that right now, the cohesion i've been super impressed with andreas gaudenzi i think he's been spot on with a lot of the, the stuff that he said that there there should be enough there that we can get to a point where everyone looks back at this um crisis and, and says okay well at least tennis managed to get its act together for the foreseeable future well that's a hopeful vision and perhaps that at a time when many people are looking around at an absence of sport for an undefined period and then wondering what it's going to look like um, when uh, when things come back. Uh, there will be an indeterminate transition period, but if we use this time wisely, then there's a hope that what comes afterwards is... Uh, is worth coming back to and solve some of the the inequities and some of the the challenges that were there in the past. So I think that the that's a pretty good place to leave it, unless there's something else that you want to um, to mention. Um, just looking ahead to 2020 and 2021. No, not at all. I'm I, I listen. You know, tennis players in general, I think, have to have an optimistic nature. I certainly did, Andrew, because if I didn't have an optimistic nature, I would have quit after a year with given my record. So I always had to believe that there was a better day coming after the right. one I just had. So I do think in general that, you know, and I am an optimist. I do feel that we'll get through, you know, this crisis a little bit quicker. But obviously, there'll be a lot of people that this leaves a huge void in their lives as well with people that they've lost and 
businesses that have you know created and and everything else and we are going to have to be inventive but that has been the great aspect that the human species has we haven't necessarily got it right in so many ways in terms of how we've been able to cooperate with each other on a global level and even on a national level um sadly with the divides that exist but we have been able to invent um our way through certain crises and i believe that you know if we all put our heads together in the right, right way and we all have the same end goal it may take a fairly circular route to get there and there will certainly be a bit of you know uh, pushback and resistance to it, but I genuinely believe we'll 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 get there. Well, that's a very hopeful vision and a, a great one to end. And I'm you know looking forward to hearing you commentate on great matches again soon. Thank so you. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, well, I hope everyone gets to enjoy the conversation as much as I have uh, today. Thanks very much, Mark. Thanks, Andrew. Everybody stay safe and uh, thanks for your time.